Welcome to this limited series podcast called Teaching and Learning in a Pandemic. I'm Holly Clark with my co-host Ken Shelton, and we're looking at lessons learned and those lessons we can use to transform education in the future. So let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to our second podcast on teaching and learning in a pandemic. This is where we're going to talk about learning loss, but this is going to be a two-part series because there is so much to dig into. So our first podcast is going to be an introduction to define learning loss, look at the theories around learning loss, and the stories that tell us more about this exact phenomenon. I'm looking forward to us sharing our thoughts around this topic that pretty much has existed all the way back to even when we were in school, back in a certain time frame uh, in the previous century, but I won't specify which time frame. <laughs> um, okay, so let's get started. And Ken, I'm going to start by defining what the term learning loss means so that we can all be on the same page. So learning loss refers to any specific or general loss of knowledge and skills or to reversals in academic progress, most commonly due to extended gaps or discontinuation of a student's education. And so we're hearing a lot about this term learning loss, and I want to make sure that we are on the same page with what it is, because it's becoming a big word as we go into this new kind of teaching and learning in the pandemic. So let's go back for a second and look at some of the theories. So one of the most known theories is this idea that students have summer learning loss. And this was conducted in 1987 by two people, uh, Cooper and Sweller. And this became known to me and you too in talking to you about this from Freakonomics. Freakonomics reported on this particular summer learning loss. And um, what this said is that when students uh, don't have learning during the summer, when they come back in that first month is when they tested them. And I think uh, we'll talk more about that in a second. But they found that there was learning loss happening in math and there was not as much learning loss happening in reading. And so Cooper, who did this first initial research, went and found that people started replicating the research. And he went and did a meta-analysis of like 37 or something like this uh, research studies and tried to find connections and information in uh, many of them. And what this meta-analysis told him is that he found differences in the effect of summer vacation on different skill areas. And I talked about that. They were in math and reading and that kids from lower socioeconomic status, and it didn't mean any kind of ethnicity, just economic status, were the ones who they found uh, had the most loss. And this meta-analysis revealed that students, regardless of resources in their homes, lost roughly equal amounts of math but not reading. And that's where the difference was. The difference was in reading. And Freakonomics talked about how you might not have those resources at home, but we're going to talk about that a little bit in a minute. Um, But here's the concerns that people voiced when they heard some of this research. So educators and parents voiced uh, three concerns about the negative impact of summer vacation. And one concern was that children learn best when uh, education is continuous. And what they were really fighting against is summer break that began because of farming things that were happening in the U.S. And at the time when they did summer off, there were 85% of kids were involved in some sort of 
sort of far, farming. And then by the end, by the time that you and I got into school, it was about 8%. Um, then we can look at, and that's the summer learning loss. And um, one little important fact is in the early 2000s, uh, researchers tried to replicate this learning loss and had a lot of trouble in replicating it. In fact, they couldn't. So we want to keep that information in there. Right. Um, there was also this idea that um, sc- student absenteeism, which you and I have, as educators, have both experienced a kid who maybe I had, I can thinking of a kid right now who was out all the time because of hockey <laughs> and he was away playing hockey. And so um, he wasn't in class all the time. There's also kids who get mono. Right. There's kids who get maybe um, a disease of some sort and are out of class. So if we go and we look at that and we define learning loss based on this, it's easy to see what is happening here in that. And so, uh, Ken, what do you see happening when you hear these stories and this research compared to now? Well, I, I, I think one of, the, one of the main questions that I have yet to be seen asked in that research is how do you define learning? And how do you measure what that learning is and therefore equate it to any deficit that is a loss? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the whole idea around you've got definitive time frames. So let's just say the summer. And then you have situations where, uh, you know, there's a variety of reasons for students that miss a large number of days of school during the school year. And ultimately, I think there's two parts. One is, okay, how do we measure learning? And of course, you and I, we know that generally it is by the standard standardized test, which that is a flaw. That's the that's one of the first flaws in the system. And first of all, anything that's standardized is always going to, by design, there's always going to be uh, a percentage that won't perform, quote unquote, up to standard. Then, then you have to also factor in what components of, if there's a loss, then that means that there is a retention. And so then how do you measure the retention? And then what do you value uh, in regards to what you measure? So in other words, if I have a student that, let's say they don't, you know. Math skills. Yeah, well, even that, or let's just, I'll even go even a larger, more thematic or more holistic approach is, let's say a student doesn't remember um, some of the concepts that they studied in their previous grade, but they do remember how to ask the right questions and how to critically analyze uh, you know, some of the content that is being covered in their next, you know, the next year in their classes. So then to me, first of all, you can't measure on a standardized test, critical thinking skills, and especially asking the right questions, which you and I are, are big advocates for asking the right questions. And so that's something that, you know, for me as an educator, I would highly value that over, oh, I remember how to do blank in math class, or I remember how to, you know, uh, do a, a sentence diagram in English class, because those are, those are skills that may be necessary. And I say may, may be necessary in that content area at that particular time. But ultimately, those are not components of learning that I, for, for me, for one, would be, um, I would not fixate on a student retaining that. But what I would rather a student be able to retain is their ability to critically think and to analyze. So let me say something about that, Ken. One of the things that we're missing, I think, right now as we're looking at this is that these are two studies that have to do with uh, kids not being in school. And we're now applying this learning loss theory into a time when kids are actually in school and we're trying to add this learning loss on top of it. So this is a summer break where kids were not 
learning. And we know this about learning. We know that if you don't practice a skill, you're it's going to decline. And if everything that you're teaching is skill-based in terms of uh, first you're going to learn um, fractions, and then you're going to learn how to cross-multiply those fractions, of course, there's going to be learning loss. Uh, you and I have had this discussion before, but I used to speak French fluently. I don't speak French at all anymore because I don't have that skill base that I'm practicing daily. Does that mean that I can't easily relearn it? No, because once you learn something, you can easily relearn it. So what's happening in some of these studies that I saw is that they are bringing back kids to school and the first week or two, they're doing a test. Your brain hasn't had a time or a chance to really uh, get back in the swing of things and we're testing you and saying that there was learning loss. And while there may have been over a three-month break, what I'm seeing happening right now in teaching and learning in the pandemic is this learning loss is becoming a thing that superintendents and school districts are sitting at tables talking about, but they're not realizing that we're in school. And while face-to-face -face instruction, you might be able to get more accomplished. And um, I'm not 100% sure I believe that. What we need to think about right now is that when we're applying this learning loss phenomenon to people, we are stressing out students, parents, and teachers for something that doesn't need to be stressed out about because we're doing it based on not being in school and learning loss being a thing there. I just want to say one other thing, Ken, and I know you have a lot to say about uh, some of this as well, but as I was doing the research for uh, learning loss, every time I came to a site that had something to say about learning loss in a pandemic, they had something to sell you. And that kind of frightened me a little bit. So, Ken, I also want to point out something right now. As you know, I'm teaching eighth graders, and I have found that these eighth graders that didn't really have the kind of learning that we love, the face-to-face -face learning, and we were all kind of just learning how to teach online, those eighth graders in my class right now, exactly where they need to be. There was three months of instruction that might not have been its best practice, but they're exactly where they need to be. And I'm hearing that from every teacher I speak to that, mm, yeah, I'm not seeing that learning loss that everyone's talking about. So that's why I want to reframe this. You know, so many thoughts. Okay. So first of all, I'm going to verbally, uh, proverbially hit rewind. Okay. One, you pointed out something. What you pointed out is this belief or this idea that learning can only occur in an educational space. Okay. So if you're, if you're equating a quote unquote loss of learning, then you're also the converse to that is you're, you're essentially saying that that learning can only take place or learning in general can only take place in an educational setting, which I vehemently reject that. Okay. And that's the whole idea where I get into, you know, um, what I call colonization of the curriculum. But, but in addition to that, look, I think that there's a couple of things to be mindful of is maintaining a social context to the whole idea around learning loss. You know, if you, you actually, I think you might've mentioned it. If not, I know you have some data. Uh, you have that, you did. You mentioned the data around social economic status of students. So let me, let me point something out to, to you and to the listeners here. You notice no one ever talks about a learning loss when a wealthy child takes a gap year before they go to college. They don't say, don't do a gap year because you're going to have learning loss. 
they usually get praised because that gap year is either I'm going to go travel or I'm going to get a job or I'm going to volunteer to do something and then I'm going to go to college. You never, ever, ever hear anyone say you can't do a gap year because you're going to experience a learning loss. But I, I would say that I think people are not really worried about high schoolers and learning loss. I think people are work, worried about kindergartners and first graders and second graders and their learning loss around math skills. Okay. And so then my argument would be then, okay, so um, anyone listening, tell me something you learned in first grade or kindergarten right now. <laughs> I learned to read. So, I mean, I wouldn't say that it depends on where you are, but, but my whole point is you learn to read. Well, you know what? I have several friends mm -hmm. who taught themselves to read mm -hmm. because school wasn't, wasn't meeting their needs or, or they weren't seen in school or even worse, which happens still now is they actually could read, but the books that they were assigned in school were boring. They didn't see themselves in the books and they had zero interest in doing it. So school assessed them as being one or two grade levels below in reading. Yet I know for a fact they were reading some of the same materials I was. It was just the content that they were being assigned to read. So so again, my, my point in sharing, sharing this is that you have to look at the big picture. How do we measure learning? And like like you shared, you know, it's first of all, there's always always a way in which something that is seen as a deficiency or a deficit in education, there's always a way where somebody's going to try to monetize. Yeah, and that. I think that's the bottom line. Yes. And then ultimately they benefit from the marketing muscle of here's a problem in education. Oh, and by the way, we can fix it. Yeah, we have a program for you. And that's that's what I wanted to get at when we started this episode is that we have all of this, these statistics, but these statistics and this, these studies are around the time when kids were not in school. We don't have that right now. And if a kid learns even the basics, they are able to build on that. And if we go back to first grade and kindergarten, and we look at the fact that in Finland, which has the number one education, um, they don't start until seven years old. Hmm. Where's your learning loss? If you're not starting school until you're seven. So I think yeah, but there's a lot of stuff with the finish program, yeah. uh, finish system that people won't do, like, you know, paying teachers a little bit more, uh, you know, their true value, the uh, emphasis on play, yeah. especially for the younger grades, you know, right. two recesses. I mean, there, there there's a lot mm -hmm. of things that, you know, you've pointed mm -hmm. out one, but you and I could point out probably a dozen items uh, that the Finnish system uses that, you know, people are like, well, the Finnish system does this. It's like, it's almost like people look for that one thing that justifies their position without looking at the whole picture. They don't even understand. I've, I've only talked to a couple of people that actually truly know why Finland con con completely reformed their entire educational system. But I'll give you a hint in one single word, recession. Right. And it's worked for them because now they have entrepreneurial mindset and kids are coming out and being able to do do the jobs that they want. They also have a homogenous society, so they don't have to account for cultural differences to the same degree that we do here in the U.S. So there are some things that that aren't factors in that system, but but, but some of the base level things you and I uh, have talked at length about around, you know, one, valuing teachers and paying them what their true value to society is, uh, multiple recesses and opportunities for play and exploration in children, uh, you know, all of those things, those, those could be applied uh, to our educational system no so matter what. 
we're going to um, just finish up with a couple statistics that just came out today from where I live in San Diego. And San Diego Unified School District has reported that eight percent they're giving out eight percent more DNFs in this pandemic, and that yes, <laughs> and that thirteen percent of them are coming from the middle school. And um, I, I think that's something that we can look at. Is that what people are calling learning loss if a kid gets a DRF? And so what I want to talk about in the next episode is I want to talk about what does that mean? Well, how can we grow and learn from this? If people are giving out more DNFs, what do we need to pinpoint as the problem? What do we need to stop calling learning loss? And what do we need to think about in terms of moving forward with equity as our basis for moving forward. And this idea that maybe we stop calling things learning loss at a time when kids are learning, reframe it and take out the stressor points that are causing teachers, students, and parents all of this stress when we've learned something in education. It's probably going to be okay. Exactly. It's probably more than probably. So uh, we're, we'll see you in episode two, and um, where we're going to continue looking at those stories that tell us a different story. <laughs> okay, thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Teaching and Learning in a Pandemic. This is a limited series that will disappear in early 2021, so make sure to listen to all the episodes before they're gone. We want to take a moment and say thank you to our sponsor, Book Creator. Book Creator is an incredible app to use in a blended learning classroom as it allows students to do more than create books, but interact with their learning. Check them out at app.bookcreator.com. It's definitely one of my favorite applications for teaching and learning in the classroom.